Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Isaiah chapter 1 begins, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations... I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. appropriate scripture reading this morning in this revelation of Jesus Christ that we have been studying for the last couple of months. One of the major themes that we have seen is that it is about judgment. And the judgment is building. The judgment is increasing. If I've accomplished nothing else in 21 years, I hope that I have tattooed one essential biblical concept to your brain. Let's see if it has worked. What is the most often repeated sin in the Bible? (laughs) And do you know why he had to be first to say it? Pride. Pride. Yeah. Pride. Pride is the most often repeated sin in the Bible. Old and New Testament. 
the egocentricity of human beings who feel that they are independent of God and that they can make up their own mind about what is right and what is acceptable. And they design a God after their own imagination because they start with themselves and they are just so full of pride. You know what June is? Pride Month. Isn't that remarkable? And what does Pride Month represent? Things that are absolutely contrary to what the Bible says. In fact, the activities that are celebrated in the heading of Pride Month are activities that God calls an abomination. God says it's abominable. Human beings go, yeah, but we're proud of it. As if your human pride somehow negates the fact that God said it's abominable. In the end, when you're standing at the judgment of God, do you think he's going to care that you were proud of your sin? That you have self-justified to the point where you announced to the world, and then the world, oh my gosh, the world has bought into this pride thing so much that you can't do a Google search without being reminded pride. You can't watch anything on TV without pride. You can't go to the grocery stores. Have you seen the new proud Oreos for this month? Not that I'm an Oreo eater, but when I came across those, I went, now we've gone too far as if we hadn't gone too far before. Pride, everywhere you go, pride, pride. And they're pushing it so hard that if you do not participate, if they have some indication, some hint that you do not agree, the problem is you. If you say, I stand for biblical principles, I stand for Christianity, I stand for God and his righteousness, I stand for God and his holiness, this world as always, will hate you and ostracize you and tell you that you are on the wrong side of history. And you know, in my experience in my 66 years, coming up on 67 now, in my years here on planet Earth, one thing that I have seen over and over again is that as we head down this slippery slope, we never seem to climb back up that slope. Each of these things that our society accepts do not go away. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And as Steve said, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. And we're just seeing it in every new day. We wake up and go, okay, what Brand new stupidity are we going to see today? It's really good to know. It's really good to be reminded over and over again that God is on his throne doing whatever seems good to him. This is exactly what we're seeing now, the complete depravity of human beings, the decay of our culture. That's exactly what the book of Revelation describes. So remember this. Next time you get slapped in the face with another pride thing, that proves the Bible's true. That proves the Bible's accurate. Because if human beings were gradually just getting better, if we were heading toward utopia, 
in a very post-millennial way. If we were actually getting collectively more sanctified, more holy and righteous, if that was happening, then the Bible's not true. But the Bible says men are going to wax worse and worse. So yeah, it's going to get even tougher and tougher to be a Christian in this world. So yeah, it's going to be even tougher to hold the standard anymore because we're continually being bombarded with the sinfulness, the depravity, and the pride, the arrogance, the ego, the self-sufficiency of this world that is saying over and over, I will not have this man rule over me. Do you think God's worried about that? (laughs) No. Not in the least. Do you think he fell off his throne because human beings didn't cooperate? I mean, he flooded the earth once because every intention of man's heart was only evil continually. Started over with eight people. God knows what he's doing. Peter says he's going to do that again. He's going to use fire next time. The conflagration is coming. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is coming. Jesus said, when you pray, pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. One day, the will of God is going to be done here on planet earth. Right now, we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth, and we just feel more strangery and pilgrimy with each day that goes by because I don't know about you, but boy, I just increasingly feel like there's nothing left here on this planet that has any attraction to me at all. If it wasn't for this work, if it wasn't for this Bible in front of me and the fact that you all are still willing to let me talk, if it wasn't for this, there's just nothing left on this planet I care about. I want Christ. I want the will of God on planet Earth. I look forward to the day when I can finally say, bye-bye, world. You've shown yourself to be nothing like the God I serve. And so for a whole month, we've had to endure the arrogance of human beings screaming that you must accept their pride. And they don't even realize that they're condemning themselves in that announcement. So good choice of a text, Steve. Because it reminded us that God is still in the judging business. And he judged Israel. He's going to judge America. He's going to judge this world. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. And the end result of all that judgment is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Sign me up. I'd love to take credit for that, but I'm pretty sure God had that worked out. You think? I think he did. Okay. So providence works? Is that what you're saying? Always. Okay. Revelation chapter 11. I want to restate this one more time. The Bible, the whole of the Bible, from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden forward, the entirety of the Bible is looking forward to that time when God judges and rewards From the moment that God presented what we call the proto-evangelium, 
the first telling of the good news. After Adam and Eve had sinned, God then judged every one of them for their sin and then caused enmity, againstness between the woman and the serpent. And then God made the announcement that the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Oh, yes, it was going to bruise his heel, but it was going to crush the head of the serpent. From that point forward, God started dividing all of humanity into two camps. You're either seed of the woman or you're seed of the serpent. There's no gray area in the middle. There's no neutrality. You're either seed of the woman or seed of the serpent. You're either the blessed seed here on planet Earth or you're part of that group of people who are going to end up under the condemnation and judgment of God. If you're wondering how that equation plays out, Jesus, in talking about the judgment of God, used the equation of a narrow path and a really slim door, and he said, and few there be that find that. But then there's this broad way with this big open door, and he said, many there are that go in thereat. So Jesus' own equation is that the majority of human beings are seated the serpent. So it's not surprising to watch the whole world swirling down the drain as a group. Jesus said that's the way it was going to be. So count yourself very fortunate, count yourself very blessed that you are among the seed of the woman, that you do belong to Jesus Christ, you're in him and he's in you, and count yourself blessed that you're going to get to God, but it's going to take that narrow way. And that narrow way is not always happy, and it's not always pleasant, and it's not always easy, and yet that's the only path to God. While the whole rest of the world is going to parade their arrogance in front of the only God who is, who isn't going to share his glory with anybody while human beings are walking around saying, glory in me, dig me, how proud I am. God is not going to let that stand forever. And he is going to bring the conflagration, and he is going to establish the kingdom of Christ, and he is going to bring blessedness, righteousness, and holiness to planet Earth. And he's going to do all that. You know how I know? Because the Bible says so. And right now we are witnessing firsthand that what the Bible says about human beings is true. And what the Bible has said about history in the Middle East is true. I mean, demonstrably true. You don't even have to argue about it. It's factually true. And so we have to conclude that since the Bible has always looked forward to the day of judgment and the day of reward, we have to conclude that that's true. So let's do a, a quick bit of review here because we are today going to discuss the third woe. Now, by the way, to my way of thinking... If God hands out one, what he calls a woe, I mean, when God says woe, he knows what he's talking about. And he's not just saying slow up. It's not like woe. It's like this is bad for you. Woe to you. And he doesn't just hand out one woe. He's handing out three woes. 
that correspond with the last three of the seven trumpets. The woes are this whole set of events that are part of, contained in, part and parcel of the last three trumpet blasts. So back in Revelation 8.13, we read, Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in the mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels that are about to sound. So that announcement was made before the last three trumpets and before the last three woes. Each of those last three trumpets indicates the beginning of the next woe of God, and it's so bad that an angel flying in the midheaven has to say woe, and not just woe, three times woe to the people who live on the earth. If you're left here on the planet, if you're still on earth when these woes are happening, well then, woe to you. So that's the first announcement of the woes to come corresponding with the last three trumpets. The first woe, which corresponds with the fifth trumpet, we find in Revelation 9.1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven, which had fallen to the earth, and the key to the shaft of the abyss was given to him. So that's the fifth angel sounding. That's the inception, the bringing about of that first set of what I would call woeful events. Like there's the star falling we just read about. The bottomless pit is opened. Locusts from the pit come and torment men for five months. You can read all about that in Revelation 9. Then when you get to Revelation 9.12, you're told specifically that the first woe has now passed. Revelation 9.12 says, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. So it's very specific when the woe begins, what happens during that woe, and that the woe has concluded at a certain point. I will also point out just parenthetically that yet again here is John demonstrating accuracy in numbers and math because John actually does math all the way through the book of Revelation. Hang on to that for when we get to Revelation 20. The second woe corresponding with the sixth of the trumpets you read about in Revelation 9.13 when the trumpet sounds. And then the woeful events begin. There's the release of angels, and there's an army whose power kills one-third of all the people. And then the other two-thirds of the people don't repent of their sins. And then we hear about seven thunders, but then they're speaking, their voice, whatever they announced, that's all sealed up. Then there's an announcement that the end is near. John then is given a bitter book to eat. Then there's the treading down of the holy city for 42 months. And then the testimony of the two witnesses. That's the beginning of chapter 11. Then there's the death of the witnesses and the resurrection of the witnesses. And that is accompanied by judgment where one-tenth of the city, 7,000 people die in an earthquake. And then we read, in Revelation 11:14, the second woe 
has passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Okay, so we know what the beginning of the second woe is. We know what occurred during the second woe. And John tells us specifically, after all of that has happened, that's the end of the second woe. And then the third woe is coming quickly. But the end of the third woe is not recorded anywhere in Revelation. The way that we are told about the first two woes, okay, that's the end of the first woe, or okay, that's the end of the second woe. You don't find anywhere in Revelation where it says, okay, that's the end of the third woe. And so we have to think about why would that be? Why didn't John take the time to say that's the end of the woe? Well, the reason that I listed the woeful events that took place during the first and the second woes is that if you'll notice, there's increasing severity from the first to the second. The second even has more events than the first. And so the third woe, if we're going to follow that pattern, is even worse. The third woe is going to continue this pattern of worsening woes and more trouble for the people of planet Earth. I would argue that from verse 15 of chapter 11, which begins with the seventh angel sounded, the very fact that the seventh angel is sounding means that's the beginning of the third woe. And from that verse until the end of chapter 19 seems to encompass everything that makes up the third woe. Every one of these woes, the first and the second, Every one of these woes is over when the events that correspond with the trumpet are complete. When they come to an end, then you get the announcement that that's the end of the woe. That's part of what leads me to believe that until we get to the end of chapter 19, we're still reading everything that's in the third woe. Revelation 10.7 says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel... So we're talking about the trumpet that is blown and the beginning of the third woe. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now you'll notice that the word days there is plural. These woes seem to take place over a number of days, it takes time for this trumpet and all these woes to be poured out on planet Earth. And then we're told about something that John calls the mystery of God, the previously unrevealed truth about God. God is going to be revealing something new about himself. So what is this new thing? And whatever the new thing is, it was announced to his servants, the prophets. So it's going to be something that we can find in the prophets that is being revealed in human history that has never been revealed in human history before at the culmination of the third woe. There's only one thing that fits all those categories. And that's the return of Christ, which we find at the end of chapter 19 and then he establishes his kingdom at the beginning of chapter 20. This, again, is why I believe that the third woe 
starts with what we're going to read this morning and ends in chapter 19. Because in chapter 19, this mystery, this previously unrevealed truth that was told to the prophets is going to happen on planet Earth in a way that has never happened before. Has Jesus ever come back to the planet and established his kingdom before? No. No. That is the revealing of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate uncovering, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is, I am convinced, the mystery, the previously unrevealed thing that is going to occur in correspondence with the end of the third woe. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm just going for big overview stuff here before we dig into the details. This mystery of God is the completing of a secret that God is unveiling to us. And like I said, I'm convinced it's his bodily return, just like all of the prophets predicted. And we're going to look into what the prophets all said in the prediction of the coming of Jesus Christ, because it was right there. In previous times when we have talked about Paul's use of the word mystery, mysterion, previously unrevealed truth. One of the mysteries that Paul talks about is the inclusion of Gentiles into the church. And when we talked about that, we went back and we looked into the Old Testament, into all the prophecies that clearly announce the inclusion of Gentiles into the blessings of God. And so it was right there. It's right there in the text. And yet people didn't get it in the first century The Jews were still resisting, even Peter was resisting, the concept that Gentiles were going to be included in these blessings and the eternity of God. Okay, same thing here. The reason that John can call the revealing of Christ a mystery, a mystery that God has already established and that he already told his prophets, is because the return of Christ and the establishment of Christ's forever kingdom is said repeatedly in the Old Testament. People just didn't get it. And they're not going to get it. We've seen through the book of Revelation how often people rebel, even as God pours out these woes on the planet. It just makes human beings rage against God. They do not turn. They do not repent. They do not come to him in faith. They continue their rebellion against him, and they continue to rebel against the idea that Jesus Christ is coming and going to establish his kingdom. If they believe that, they'd repent. If they believe that, they'd want to get on the winning side, but they continue to rebel against it, even though it's right there in the text, even though it's predicted over and over again. And so much of Revelation is God dealing with Israel, and Israel is continuing in their obstinacy against Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and they're not going to believe it until he comes back. And God's going to be able to say, yeah, but I told you. Yeah, but it's in the text, what we call the Old Testament. It's in your Bible. It's written right there, and you continue to deny it. I will also say that as we're going through this next big section of Revelation, we're going to bump into a couple of the things that are called mysteries, like we're going to read about the mystery of the woman in Revelation 17, and that's also part of this final woe. We're going to read about mystery Babylon in chapter 17. We're going to read about the beast 
And by the way, all seven of the bowl judgments, which we haven't even gotten to yet, we've gone through the seven trumpets. We've gone through the seven seals. But we haven't even gotten to the bowl judgments yet in chapters 11 through chapter 16. And they are all part of this third woe. So again, I argue that this third woe is past when Babylon has finally fallen. We're going to read about that in chapter 17 and 18. And when the revealing of God on earth is over and the beast and his armies are defeated in Revelation 19, that, I believe, is the final consummation and conclusion of these woe, woe, woes. And it is the revealing of this mystery of God that he is going to send his son and establish his son's everlasting kingdom, the very thing that the people he is writing to refuse to believe. They're going to see it with their own eyes. And it's going to be judgment. Because that's the theme repeatedly that God is going to judge and give blessings. So let's read. That was all introduction. I'm a half hour in, and I think I'm done introducing. Uh, We are in chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 14. Have I lost anybody yet? No. Everything makes sense so far? Could I go back over that again? Yeah, I, I could. And yet I'm not going to for someone like you. I like a church that speaks fluent sarcasm. (laughs) I like that. Chapter 11, verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And the seventh angel sounded... And there arose loud voices in heaven. Now you'll notice that in the previous woes, even in the previous visions that John had, sometimes he would have an angel interpret for him. But it was a voice. A voice would tell him things. At this moment, this cataclysmic moment, as this third woe is beginning, There's these voices in heaven that are making this announcement collectively because this is such an important event. This is the culmination of all human history. This is the mystery of God finally coming to planet Earth. And so there are all these loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Okay, now, it would be easy to read past that and say, okay, that's an announcement that the voices are making. But what they're saying is exactly what the Old Testament prophets have been saying ever since the Old Testament prophets started talking. They're simply declaring the exact same thing that the prophets have all said. For instance, let me read some of those to you. I'm going to start in Ezekiel 21, 24. You can turn there if you want, but it's going to be tough to keep up with me. I'm going to move fairly quickly here. Ezekiel 21, starting at verse 24. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Because you have made your guilt known, and in that your offenses are uncovered, 
so that in all your deeds your sins are seen, because you have come to my mind, you will be seized by hand, and you, slain, wicked one, the prince of Israel, whose day has come in the time of the punishment of the end. This is what the Lord God says. Remove the turban, take off the crown. In other words, I'm going to strip you of your royal garments. This will no longer be the same. Exalt that which is low and humble that which is high. Pride. Just thought I'd throw that in again. Ruins, ruins, ruins. He says it three times, like whoa, whoa, whoa. Ruins, ruins, ruins I will make of it. And this also will be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Okay, so all the way back in Ezekiel, here's this proclamation of God's judgment that culminates in, I'm going to destroy the kingship of the prince of this world who is exercising authority over Israel. I'm going to strip him down. I'm going to judge him. And then I'm going to give the kingdoms of this world to my son to whom they all belong in the first place. I will give it to him whose right it is to even have it. Okay, now once Ezekiel said that, I mean, this is one of those moments where we can ask the question, how many times does God have to say something for it to be true? The answer is only once, but you're going to see that he says it over and over and over again. But ever since Ezekiel, that declaration has been made that the kingdoms of this world are going to be given to the one whose right it is to have them. Here's a few passages of the book of Daniel. These will be familiar to you. This first one's right out of Daniel 2 in describing the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed. What do those elements represent? We know from Daniel's interpretation, they represent the kingdoms of this world, starting at Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the Ten-Toed Kingdom. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold are all crushed to pieces all at the same time, and they were like chaff from the summer threshing floor. <coughs> And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. Do you remember how Daniel interpreted that? He said, that's the kingdom of God that's never going to be destroyed. It's going to first destroy all those previous kingdoms and then establish the kingdom of God. Of Jesus Christ. Daniel 2.44, same chapter. And in the days of those kings, the king of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. The king of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Hmm. John said, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. They're saying the same thing. They're announcing the same event which is that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people, but it will crush and put an end to all former kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Same idea, Daniel 4, 3. 
How great are his signs and how mighty are his miracles. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Daniel 6, starting at verse 25, then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples and the nations and the populations of all the languages who are living in all the land and wrote, May your peace be great. I issue a decree that in all the realms of my kingdom, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. How many times do you need to hear this? Wait, I've got more. I'm not close to done. Daniel 7 I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and honor and a kingdom, so that all the peoples, all the nations, all the populations and languages will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. John said, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. He's announcing the same thing that Daniel announced. But did they get it? Did Israel get it? Did they understand it? No. No. When their Messiah came to the planet in front of them, did they get it? No. They tried to make Jesus a political king. They were happy with that. You're a great king. You pull taxes out of fishes' mouths and feed us with loaves and fishes. You're the best king ever. And then especially when they killed him and he rose from the dead. You can't even be killed. How good a king would you be? They didn't understand the spiritual implications of why he came to the planet the first time in order to die to pay our redemptive price for our sin and that he's returning to establish the kingdom that will never be defeated. And unlike all the kingdoms of this earth that are going to fall, that are going to be crushed, his kingdom is going to be established on the power, the might, the sovereignty, the endurance, and the everlastingness of God himself. Therefore, the prophets could declare, speaking for God, that there was this kingdom coming. They didn't get it. That's why John calls it the unveiling of this mystery of God. It's always been right there in front of them. It's always been right there in the text. They just didn't get it. You'd think I'd be done by now. Oh, no. No, far from it. Daniel 7, starting at verse 26, but the court will convene for judgment and his dominion, talking about the little horn here, his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. And then, and by the way, that tells you when the kingdom is going to come. The kingdom comes after the little horn has been to the planet and that 10 nation confederacy has happened on the planet, all of which has not happened yet in human history. It's right around the corner. That has to happen. And when that happens, Jesus Christ comes back and establishes his own sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole of heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all of the empires of the earth will serve and obey him. Hasn't happened yet. Has to happen. John here in the book of Revelation is just validating 
what the prophets have already said. There's this kingdom coming. It hasn't happened yet, but God's going to reveal it. Zechariah 14, verse 9. The Lord will be the king over all the earth. Where? All the earth. There is a eschatological outlook that says that all of this kingdom language that we keep hearing, that that's all some kind of spiritual kingdom and that Jesus is sitting on David's throne right now at the right hand of God and he's establishing this spiritual kingdom right now that will never end and that's not what the prophets said. And here John is declaring that what's going to happen, the revealing that God is going to do is in accordance with what the prophets have said. God has already told the prophets the details. Go back and look at those prophetic details and it'll explain to you what John's talking about. The Lord will be the king over all the earth. And after a succession of earthly kings that are going to be destroyed when he comes back, it's really impossible to say that his kingdom is a solely spiritual, only spiritual kingdom because his only spiritual kingdom is in a line in a succession of very earthly, very physical, very literal kingdoms. And the Lord will be the king over all the earth. And on that day, Yahweh will be the only one and his name will be the only one. His authority will be the only one. In that day, okay, has that happened yet? No. But when Jesus was on the planet, he said, pray, thy kingdom come. Because it is God's kingdom. And God gives it to his son, exactly like John told us here. Exactly like all the prophets say here. That the kingdom of God is going to be established. And he is going to give it to his son. And he is going to rule over the whole of the earth. And he's going to be the only one. And then, of course, we couldn't talk about this topic without reading a bit of Psalm 2. When I say a bit, I mean the whole thing. I'm going to read the whole psalm because it perfectly reflects what we're talking about here. Because it starts with, why do the nations rage? Why do the people of the planet rage? The NASB says, why are the nations restless? And the people's plotting in vain. There's the complete emptiness, the complete vanity, the complete human ego, making our plans, making our plots. And one of the chief plots that you see all over the world right now to this very moment, when you get home this afternoon, you're going to see it everywhere. One of the chief plots of human beings on planet Earth right now is how to throw off God. How in our arrogance to just get rid of God. And David starts by saying, they're plotting in vain. I mean, if in fact God exists and if he's anything like he describes himself in the Bible, he's not concerned what people think. Okay, so David's not going to say that. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers of the earth conspire together against Yahweh and against his anointed. That's as true today as it was when David wrote it. And David wrote it because it was true before he wrote it. So it is true of the human experience that people want to throw off God 
and they will not have his anointed rule over them. Verse 3 says that they will say, let us tear their shackles apart and throw their ropes away from us. In other words, I want nothing to do with this God. And I don't want his law and I don't want his expectations. That's what the society right now is saying. We, we don't want the expectations that God puts out. We don't want the Bible to have any rule over us. I think I told you that I had a conversation with somebody a couple of years ago who ended the conversation in a rather shocking way by saying to me, I don't understand why you think that people should conform their behavior to something that some guy wrote 2,000 years ago. Okay, now there's a lot wrong with that statement. First off, it wasn't some guy, and it wasn't just 2,000 years ago. But the minute, and pardon me women, but I know the end of the story, the moment she said it, I thought, Psalm 2. You've just proven the Bible's true. In your denunciation of the Bible, you just proved that God knew that people like you were going to say things like that. Why should I conform my behavior to something some guy wrote 2,000 years ago? They're going to say, let us tear the shackles of God apart and let us throw off these bonds that he has on us, these ropes that he has. Let us get rid of God. Verse 4 says, and God was terribly upset because he realized that the free will of human beings was not going to allow him to be God anymore. No? no. Would that be a misreading? Yeah. A little eisegesis? <laughs> he who sits in the heavens laughs. Human beings in their silly rebellion think that they're going to throw him off? You know, I used to see a bumper sticker. Don't see it as much anymore. But there was a big movement within Christianity, which you know, Christianity always has its trends and its movements. But there was a movement for a little while, try Jesus. And a lot of churches bought in. And there were bumper stickers and signs and lava lamps and everything else that said, try Jesus. And every time I would see try Jesus, my first thought was, he's not on trial. You don't try him. He tries you. You're on trial. God in heaven laughs because he knows he's the judge. He knows that he's the omnipotent sovereign and that you are just dust. I have cats. Have I mentioned that? I have cats. As a consequence, I have to clean my floors on a very regular basis because I get little dust and fur balls, especially under my bed for some reason. I don't know why they collect there. Would I be worried if a little bit of that dust and fur ball shook its fist at me? No, I'm going to swiffer it anyway. I'm going to take care of it because it means nothing to me. That's the comparison David's making here. That the people of earth can all collectively get together and shake their fist at God and say, let's throw him off. Let's have nothing to do with him. We don't want him. We don't want his son. It's the declaration the world is making at this very moment. And God is not changed one iota by the rebellion of human beings. God in heaven laughs. And as if it weren't enough that he laughs, 
he then scoffs at them, which means he makes fun of them. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger. Here comes the judgment. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, look what his answer to them is. In all their rebellion, in their wanting to throw off God and his son, God's answer is, oh, you don't like my son? I'm going to make him ruler of absolutely everything. Then you can deal with him. But as for me, I have already, past tense, installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, this is now the son speaking. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. Ask of me and I will certainly give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. And you will break them with a rod of iron, and you will shatter them like earthenware. It's the same thing Daniel described, that when Christ comes back to establish his kingdom, he's going to ruin all the previous kingdoms, and they're going to blow away like dust and chaff in the wind. Same prediction here in the Psalms. He's going to break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. Now then, you kings, you kings of the earth, you earthly rebellious people, use insight. Let yourselves be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. A minute ago, they wanted nothing to do with the sun. God says, kiss the sun. Do obeisance to the son. Get down in front of my son so that he is not angry. And then you perish from the way because when his wrath is kindled just a little bit, human beings perish. So therefore, think about it. Therefore, take counsel. Therefore, listen to my words. Therefore, serve the Lord with reverence an appropriate understanding of who it is that you're dealing with. Get down in front of him. Kiss the son. Do not rebel against the son and rejoice in the son, but do it with trembling, understanding who it is that you're dealing with. Otherwise, his wrath is going to be kindled quickly. And I love the very last phrase. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Yeah, because there's only one refuge from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is predicted. I keep saying this. Judgment is predicted. The prophets have all predicted it. The book of Revelation summarizes it and predicts it and declares it. The wrath of God is coming. How are you going to avoid it? Run to Christ. Says it in the Old Testament. Says it in the New Testament. There's only one place you can go to avoid the wrath of God. Run to Jesus Christ. And people don't. And why don't they? Pride. Happy Pride Month, by the way, to all of you. And just thought I'd... Back to Revelation. 
The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Here is God declaring judgment and reward and the establishing of the kingdom that's going to belong to Christ. And what's the very next thing that the residents of heaven do? Worship. Get down on your face. Praise him. Declare the glory of God. Why? Because from the beginning of human beings on planet Earth, he has been predicting this very outcome. This is what's coming. This is the culmination of human history. The appearance of Jesus Christ and the establishing of his kingdom. And God makes sure that when that happens in human history, that he gets all the worship and all the praise for it because it is a demonstration yet again of his unchanging nature and his complete sovereignty over human history that human history would culminate the exact way he said it was going to from the beginning. And in heaven they get down and worship him for it. I would suggest get on the side of the 24 elders and worship God and kiss the son and worship him in reverence because this is coming anyway. This is going to happen anyway. Do you realize what a shock this is going to be to the rebellious world when the very Jesus Christ who they don't believe in comes back and sets up his kingdom? And do you think Holiness can break out on planet Earth and the will of God is done on Earth like it is in heaven. Do you think that can happen and the same rebels still be here? The judgment is obvious. The judgment is inevitable. The judgment is declared over and over again and now it's going to be declared yet again. Keep reading. They fell on their faces and they worshiped God saying, we give you Thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. You're finally doing what you said you were going to do. And the nations, look at the response of the nations. It's exactly like Psalm 2. And the nations were enraged. The nations were not happy to see this happening. And the nations have always been enraged. The nations have always been in rebellion. The nations are still rebelling against God to this very day, to this very moment. The nations were enraged and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged. And to give their reward to thy bondservants, the prophets. Astounding at this culmination, which is all happening just like the prophets said. At this culmination, God is rewarding the prophets for having said what he told them to say, which all comes to its final fruition in the very thing that the prophets predicted because they spoke faithfully by God. And so they are now rewarded for it. And at that time, they're going to give reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints. Oh, good, we're in it too. 
we also get rewarded. And to those who fear your name, not just to those who give a passing head nod to the idea of Jesus, not just a casual admitting that, oh, yeah, Jesus, Christianity, yeah, that seems like an okay thing. I like the T-shirts. I like the, you know, the church I go to has Taekwondo and classes for single people, you know, whatever. We play bingo. You know, yeah, that's not what's being described here. Casual Christianity isn't going to cut it. The reward is to those who actually fear his name, the people who actually reverence God, who understand who he is and consider him more important than their own life, to those he's going to give rewards, to the saints and to those who fear your name, the small and the great. I like the fact that God is no respecter of persons. I like the fact that he will reward everybody who fears him. It doesn't matter if they were anybody on this planet. It doesn't matter if they were a king. It doesn't matter if they were a pauper. It doesn't matter if they lived their life in a ditch somewhere or in the biggest palaces of this planet. If they fear God, if they reverence Jesus Christ, they're going to receive a reward, great or small. And, back to the judgment theme, to destroy those who destroy the earth. Interesting phraseology. So here again, judgment, blessings. Judgment, rewards. That's the theme all the way through the Bible. That's the theme of so much of Revelation. And that is, I'll say again, the culmination of human history, just like the prophets predicted. And then verse 19. It would be real easy to read past verse 19 and not understand the significance of it, but it says, and the temple of God, the naos, the, the sanctuary, the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of the covenant appeared in his temple. Remember that John is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. To us Gentiles, we wouldn't see the significance of it. John just says that and keeps moving. One of the things I saw was that the temple was open. Oh, look, it's the ark. Move on. Most people, as much as they know about the Ark of the Covenant, is what Steven Spielberg has told them. The truth is, to any thoroughgoing Jew, to any Jew who knew his history and his religion, he knew that the Ark of the Covenant was something nobody got to see. And the high priest got to go once a year if he had the right clothing on, if he had the right sacrifices, if he was carrying the right blood. He could go in once a year to make atonement for Israel before God, and he got to stand before the Ark of the Covenant. And on the capareth, the covering, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, there were these two gold angels with their wings wrapping around and met in the middle. And he would pour out the blood in front of God. And that blood sacrifice would buy atonement for all Israel for another year. But it was a completely secret thing. Nobody standing on the outside got to see any of that happen. They just assumed it was happening. And then the the presence of God, the cloud of God would come down and the people would see that and they would see the acceptance of God accepting that sacrifice for another year. 
And then Jesus comes to the planet. And then Jesus died. And we read that when he died, that very thick curtain that separated the outer sanctuary from the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, the place where only the high priest could go, which, by the way, I will point out, that ever since the time of Jeremiah, there was no more Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, even in the temple in Jerusalem. There was no more Ark of the Covenant. Since the Babylonian captivity, people have been trying to find the Ark of the Covenant. But the important part was that the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be in the Holy of Holies, and I think that's why they had that very thick curtain there, so that nobody knew there was no Ark in there, and that when the high priest went in there, he was doing nothing. He wasn't pouring blood between the wings of the angels. He wasn't making atoning sacrifice. He wasn't doing anything because there was no Ark of the Covenant. The Jews know all this history, and then Jesus dies, and that thick curtain is ripped from the top to the bottom, proving that God was the one who ripped it open, showing that the Holy of Holies was empty. And people argue that maybe the curtain was ripped open so that the love of God and the grace of God could then flow out to all people. I don't think God ripped the curtain to let himself out. I think he ripped the curtain to let us in so that we could see that that is not where atonement is made. Atonement was being made on a cross in the place of the skull. It was fully and utterly accomplished. It didn't have to be done year by year by year. Our better high priest accomplished the kind of atoning that the Levitical high priest could never accomplish. Okay, so if you're a thoroughgoing Jew, you know all that history. And you know that all happened in Jerusalem. And then you hear John say... I saw the holiest place in heaven, and the Ark of the Covenant was there. Okay, now that's probably not the man-made Ark of the Covenant, because when God told Moses how to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, he said, make it according to these plans, and the writer of Hebrews tells us that those were all shadows of the realities in heaven. Can you imagine the Ark of the Covenant that belongs to God, the constant reminder that reminder that he has a covenant with Israel. And yet people will try to tell you God's done with Israel? No, he's not. He has the Ark of the Covenant in his temple, this constant reminder that he's made a covenant with those covenant people. And I think that's why that is included right in this declaration that God is going to reward his bondservants, the prophets, and he's going to reward the saints and those who fear his name, both small and great. He's going to judge the others, but then what John sees is the temple of God, which is in heaven, which is opened, and the Ark of the Covenant appears in his temple, and not just the Ark, but there are flashes and lightnings and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm all take place at that moment at the revealing, at the unveiling of the plan of God coming to its ultimate fruition just like he covenanted with his people, just like he promised his people, just like he declared through all the prophets. And just to demonstrate and to prove that it was all good and that it was all valid, he's got an Ark of the Covenant in his holiest place. It's remarkable. It's astounding. Don't just read past it and ignore it. God himself, the same way that he put the rainbow in the heavens to remind himself of the Noahic covenant, 
has the Ark of the Covenant in heaven in his holy place. But when it's revealed, there's shouting in heaven, and there's yelling in heaven, there's natural events in heaven, and there's hail and thunder, and there's earthquakes, and just everything gets all shook up when God reveals the Ark of the Covenant that is a constant reminder to him that he is in covenant with his people. And that's why we all have confidence that we're going to be okay because God himself has a reminder that he's in covenant with his people. I see that as beautiful. Jesus is our intercessor. Jesus and his finished work is our complete and utter redemption. And God reminds himself all the time of the promises he has made to his people. So how saved are you? Completely. Completely saved. Micah asked me, are you going to get to chapter 12 today? (laughs) No, not likely. Next week we'll get to chapter 12 and we'll talk about, and this is important, this is a transitionary point in the book of Revelation. Because up until now, we've been reading sort of a narrative style of John. Yes, he's been introducing these various woes and these various trumpets and these various things and the the letters that were written to the churches at the beginning and stuff. But it's been moving in a sort of sequential line. Starting in chapter 12, and for the next couple of chapters, we're going to see the introduction of personages and characters and events that don't follow that same sort of narrative line, that same sequential chronological line. But it's going to fill in a whole lot of gaps about the things that are occurring during the third woe. So there's your coming attractions. If uh, next Sunday you're not here, I'll just assume that I bored you to tears today. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.